so this morning we're going to be continuing our foundation series, and and, and particularly uh, this morning what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about what is Scripture. So so far we've talked about what is the gospel, how does someone become a Christian. Uh, we've talked about what is prayer. We've talked about what is the church, <clears throat> and now we're going to look at what is Scripture. And and I realized in preparing this that this is actually um, most likely going to be two sermons instead of one. Um, we're going to look at what is Scripture, kind of like what is this book that, that, we, that we read or should read? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> what is this book? Um, and then how do we read this book? Because this is a book unlike any other book that you're probably reading um, <clears throat> in your life. This is... This is um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that, and I realize there's probably two sermons lest we stay here for two hours, three hours. Um, I, it's funny, I, I, um, Bryn mentioned last week that he set a timer for himself uh, so that he wouldn't go too long, and he still went for close to an hour, and he, then he made his comment about if he was me, he would just keep going, and I was like, oh, surely I don't go that long, and I realized, <laughs> when I went to the week previous, I went for over an hour, and so it's, it's kind of an apology. Um, also, it's just so much, there's so much that needs to be said, and so much needs to be taught, and so maybe we need to look at other avenues of, <clears throat> of, of giving teaching and instructing, but um, I just want to encourage you, I just want to encourage you that um, even though we're going to be primarily doing some just teaching this morning, I want to encourage you that salvation is something to be experienced. Salvation is something to be experienced, not something to just be believed. When, when God provides salvation, He provides liberty for the captives, He binds up the brokenhearted, He, he fulfills all His promises in Jesus, <clears throat> that should be something that is really experienced by us, His people, in the here and now. Now, we wrestle with the tension of, of, of not having that in its fullness just yet, but there should be an experience of it in your life. And so that's why, that's why we pray. That's why, that's why I believe the Holy Spirit leads us to take moments like we did before to actually pray is because sometimes, especially in the midst of struggles and trials, in the midst of those valley seasons as we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, <clears throat> it can be difficult to remember that salvation is something that we can experience here and now. That salvation is, is something we're experiencing even here and now. The liberation of us from, from the powers of sin and death and experiencing the newness of life that is in Christ Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to that end. There is always more to be had in God. There is always more. You, you, you might be at a mountaintop experience right now. <clears throat> And be just like, you know, everything is just so amazing. God is so good. And that is just such a real experience for me. I want to tell you there is more to be had. There is always more to be had. Some of you are at the very low. And you're like, I, you know, I've been at mountaintops and there have been times when I felt like, oh, God is so amazing. But right now, I'm really just even struggling to even want to go to him in prayer. And I want to encourage you that his desire is not to leave you there. His desire is not for you to stay there. His desire is to give you more and to bring you higher and to reveal more of his love and his goodness and his grace to you. And so I just want to encourage you in that. Um, Because sometimes I feel like sometimes I feel like we can get stuck, that our faith just remains um, a belief system. And it just remains a, a set of things that we give assent to as being true. 
and yet we don't experience them lived out and we don't experience their life. But we're going to be talking about the Bible. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a, a tickle in my throat. Um, we're going to be talking about the Bible this morning. What it is, um, how did we get it, what's it supposed to do, all these sorts of questions. Now, <clears throat> apologies. <laughs> I just want to say as by way of preface, by way of preface before we, um, before we, we really get into it, this morning, because it's part of our foundation series, um, this morning what we're going to go through when we talk about what the Bible is, is going to be quite simple, basic, and straightforward. And the reason why I say that is because in a, in a room with this many people in it, I recognize that there's people all across the spectrum of levels of interest in, in that question, what is the Bible? For some of you, for some of you, you're going to have almost no interest in almost anything I'm going to say this morning. I recognize that. For, for some of you, for some of you, it, your, your faith and your trust in God's Word is just so simple, you, 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 you just accept it. You just accept that, you know, Christians have always accepted the Bible. The Christians, Christians have always valued the Bible. And so Christians be Bibling, so I be Bibling too. Like, isn't that, that's, that's, as simple as, as, that's as simple as things are for you. And I want to encourage you, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> now, there's another group of people, you know, on the other end of the spectrum who want to understand everything before they're willing to believe or trust anything. They, they want to understand, well, how did we get each book? Who wrote it? When? How? Why? <clears throat> they want to understand all the textual criticism issues. They want to understand all the, the challenges and, and all this sort of stuff that, that Scripture has faced down through the last two millennia. And I want to say to you, God loves your deep thinking. God loves your inquisitiveness and is never afraid of any of your questions. But I also want to encourage people on that end of the spectrum to don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't, don't be so deep down into the minutia that you actually miss the testimony of the Holy Spirit down through church history that has testified that this book and the message that's in it has the power to transform your life, has the power to, to, to <clears throat> reveal Jesus and to bring about salvation in your life. And so I want to encourage both ends of the spectrum, uh, both ends of the spectrum. For the, first, for the first group of people, I want to encourage your, your simplistic faith. That, that's absolutely okay. I also want to encourage you that there's going to be times perhaps when people are going to bring a challenge to that faith and your trust in Scripture. And I want to encourage you that when that happens, that's okay. There's lots of really smart people down through church history who've done a lot of good thinking on your behalf. They've done a lot of research, they've done a lot of scholarly work, and they've answered a lot of questions. And so if you have questions, just ask, and, <clears throat> and there are answers out there. And again, for those on the other end of the spectrum, I, don't, I want to encourage you, don't let getting caught down into the minute details of every little thing stop you from appreciating the way the Spirit is breathing through this book into your life today. So, that's sort of the, the preamble out of the way. <clears throat> so, what makes up the Bible? This is the first question we're going to ask ourselves before we kind of get into what is inspiration, how do we know God's working through this. So, what makes up the Bible? So, um, who's got a physical Bible here? 
a lot of people are just going digital. That's okay. God can still work in digital. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've, 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 heard, I've heard people argue, like, you know, unless it's a real Bible, it's not a real Bible. It's like, okay. Um, uh, I, I appreciate that. I, when, when, I'm, when I'm reading the Bible, when I'm studying the Bible, I, I, my preference is a physical Bible. My preference is a physical Bible. Not for any spiritual reason. I don't believe that, the, that if it's printed, it's somehow more real, or it's more really the Bible, or it's more really God's Word. It's just from a study perspective, being able to look at both sides of the page. Um, there's lots of studies that have been done for memory and retention and cognition. Um, of course, I'm justifying my position now. Why? Because it's more spiritual, and the Lord only wants us to read in paper. No. <laughs> um, so if you've got, if you've got your Bible, you, you'll, you'll probably notice, if you're familiar with it, Around about, let's see here. Starts at Matthew. All right. Around about page 869, you will find <laughs> that there's this weird blank page in the middle in most Bibles. That's because there's an old bit of the Bible, and there's a new bit of the Bible called the Old and the New Testaments. And what these are, what these are, are the two testaments. So we had the Old Testament, which was the revelation given through the prophets to the Jews. Um, and then we have the New Testament, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the testimony about him and his particular teachings. And so your Bible is divided up into these two sections. Now, within these two sections, there are 66 books that, com- that are in this single book. Um, <clears throat> so really, rather than a single book, it's really a compilation of books. It's kind of like if you took the whole Harry Potter series and you put it all into one omnibus. That's what it kind of is with God's words. Um, we put it into an omnibus of revelation of, of God speaking. And so it's 66 books. And, and to say books is really kind of modern nomenclature um, because Really, when we say books, what we mean is that there's all sorts of different writings that are in this one book, and we call them books. So we have letters that apostles wrote, and we call them books. Does that make sense? So it's not just that they're all books, but it's a whole compilation of different types of literature that have been put together into the one book, and we call them the 66 books. And I should just say that here in this church, we, we, we tend to follow the Protestant tradition, which means that we have 66 books. If you are following, if, if your Bible is from, say, a Roman Catholic tradition or Eastern Orthodox tradition, you're going to find there's a slight variation on how many books are in your Bible. But we're not going to get into that this morning because, <clears throat> again, this is just the foundation series. This is the basics. What we're going to go through is probably what's going to be in your hand. And so in this book, there's ancient histories. There's genealogies, there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there's letters, there's um, uh, parables, there's apocalyptic literature, which is always fun. Um, And so there's all sorts of different genres, all different types of literature that make up this book. Now, I should say that not all Christians have always agreed about what should be in this book. 
Sometimes in, in our nice, evangelical, simplistic Christian understanding, um, we, we, we like to believe, we like to believe that this was just a clear, cut-and-dry ca- cut case of what should be in and what should be out. Because we, we think in very Western terms, very straight, very linear, very cut-and-dry terms about what is or is not God's Word. We, we, we have a tradition that we've inherited. But I just want to say that when it comes to what's in this book, I 100% believe that these books are the inspired Word of God. But I also want to recognize that there's disagreement amongst Christians about whether or not either all of the books that are in here, in your Bible, should be in there. And there's also disagreement about whether or not there's these other books, <clears throat> often known as the Apocrypha, um, should be part of your Bible as well and should be held at the same standard of Scripture. And, and down through history, Christians from different groups have disagreed over what should be in or what should be out. That's just a reality. Even, even when it came to... We'll, we'll, we'll get into... We'll get, it, we'll get into each of the, each of the canons, sorry, each of the testaments, and we'll, we'll discuss each of them individually. Um, but just to say that, that our final sort of resting place for us in, in at least our Western tradition on, on these 66 books really didn't come about until about the 4th or 5th century in its most kind of complete form. Up until then, there was a lot of disagreement. Well, I say a lot of disagreement. There was a very core consensus about a lot of books, and then there were some books that were on the fringe, and then... And some of them were brought in, some of them were put out, but we'll discuss why that was in a moment for various reasons. So, what makes up the Bible? The Old and New Testament, 66 books, some 40 different authors, down through 1,000 to 1,500 years of writing. How did we get the Old Testament? This is the next question. How did we get the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament was brought about uh, through the prophets. The prophets who God breathed through and, and they wrote down what they felt inspired to write. And this contains a collection of narratives, stories, poetry, psalms, all these sorts of things. And so by the time we get to Jesus, by the time we get to Jesus, the Old Testament canon, the, the, the books that we have in the Old Testament, were pretty much settled and agreed upon. And we take as our, we, we as Christians, we take as our, our reference point Jesus. Jesus, who not only extensively quotes the Old Testament, but refers to it authoritatively as Scripture. Now, what's interesting is that he also recognizes the Hebrew Old Testament, the, um, the Hebrew Old Testament as Scripture, but then there was also a Greek translation of the Hebrew te- Old Testament, which he also quotes from quite often, which is interesting for us when we talk about translations and which one's the best translation and which one is really the Word of God. Jesus was operating from two different translations of the same scriptures, and that was okay for him. He recognized that it was the underlying meaning of the text, which was the Word of God, and not the particular language that it was in that made it the Word of God. So how did we get the Old Testament? <clears throat> well, all these pieces of literature were brought down and, and over time were testified by the Holy Spirit, and there became this settled consensus that these were revelation from God, and these were to be taught amongst God's people. Um, So then we move to the New Testament, and there's a gap of, I believe, about 400 years or so called the intertestamental period, where there was just this recognition that there was no longer any prophets who were giving Scripture. There was no longer any prophets who were giving revelation from God. And then along comes John the Baptist, 
and he's recognized as a prophet, and then Jesus, who comes as the fullest revelation. And so the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. In all the various stories, in all the poetry, in all the, the histories, in all the genealogies, all of it is pointing forward to something. And I believe the fulfillment of that something is Jesus. So then why do we have the New Testament? <clears throat> well, we have the New Testament because the New Testament is the record of that something. The New Testament is the record of Jesus. So we, we have the four Gospels, which are the four different accounts of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John, which all record and testify, record and testify about what Jesus said and what he did. This is really important for us because we are Christians. And if you haven't put two and two together, that means that we are little Christs which means we're following after him. We are disciples of Jesus. So to be a disciple of someone means that we have to learn their ways. We have to understand what they're teaching. And the way in which we understand and learn the ways of Jesus is through the testimony about him. So in the Gospels, in the Gospels we have his life and his story recorded from four different perspectives as they experienced it. In the, in the later uh, letters, um, that we have from, from Paul and Peter and uh, John. We, we have further testimony about the early church and how they developed their understanding, how they were reflecting upon how we live as disciples of this Jesus. And so, and so when it came to the New Testament, and there was this discussion, there was this discussion about, well, what's, what do we believe? And what do we teach people when they come into the faith? Around about the second, third century, they began to have these discussions because there were certain groups that were coming in, and they were beginning to teach errors to the church. They were beginning to teach um, aberrations of the way of Jesus. <clears throat> and so the church kind of came together, and they're like, hey, we got to do something about this. Um, and they began to decide, well, we need to sort of settle what is the teaching of Jesus. What is the teaching of Jesus? Now, Sometimes people will point to this, this point in history and they go, ah, see, it's just men trying to, trying to control people. So they just, they, they're going to try and control the narrative and they're going to try and decide you know, what's in, what's out as, as, a, as a means of power and a power grab. And um, while I will admit that human beings, even in the church, are not, are not immune to power grabs, the process that, that was undertaken was not a process so much of, well, let's determine who, who is Scripture or anything, who, who gets to write Scripture, but it was a process of recognizing, a process of recognizing what the church was already using as Scripture. And so when it comes to the New Testament and what books are in the New Testament, the, the early church kind of had two criteria, two criteria that they were looking at. One was it, was it apostolic? Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Well, because remember when we talked about the nature of the church, and we looked at Acts 2, and it said they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I connected the, the fact that they were dedicating themselves to the apostles' teaching with Matthew 28, when Jesus says to, who, to his disciples, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. We recognize that when the apostles are teaching the church, they're not teaching out of their own mind. They're not teaching out of their, their own ideas. But what they're teaching is what they have from the Lord. 
what they were taught, what they were discipled in from the Lord. And so when it came to these New Testament books that were, that, and letters and these sorts of things that were, were floating around the church and were being used in churches to teach and disciple people, well, the first thing when, when it came to, to organizing that canon, the thing that they wanted to do, they wanted to understand, is this book apostolic? Did it come from an apostle? Was it written by an apostle? And if not, what do we do with it? Now, if it wasn't written by an apostle, other, other books that weren't written by apostles were also tied in if they were closely related to apostles. So, for instance, Luke in the book of Acts, um, we recognize that because there's a, a, there's a shift in the, in the third person to first person about halfway through the book of Acts, we realize that Luke had actually joined Paul on his missionary journey. And so we understand that Luke in his testimony about in the Gospels and in the book of Acts about what was happening is because he was there and his testimony was informed by an apostle. And so they wanted to know, A, does this have apostolic heritage? Is this from an apostle? Because if it was, then we can probably, we could probably acknowledge that this is something that Jesus taught. That was, I believe that was the essence of what they wanted to really get down to was as we're teaching people to be little Christ, as we're discipling people in the way of Jesus, we want to make sure that the letters, that the books, that the teaching that we're giving to people is what Jesus taught. And so that was the first one. And the second criteria was essentially, was it old enough? Has this, has this teaching, has this letter been generally recognized and accepted as genuine teaching from the Lord throughout the church. And so what this did was it actually ruled out some books, some books that maybe you've heard are perhaps really good contenders for being in, things like the Gospel of Thomas, um, the, these, these later, much, much later books, um, which come from a Gnostic era, um, these much, much later books that were excluded from the Bible on the grounds that not only, not only were they too late to have been a genuine testimony about the teaching of Jesus, but, but they weren't recognized across enough of the church. And this is, you know, you know how I talked about there was, like, there was difficulty. There was difficulty in, in all the churches kind of coming to a consensus about what's in, what's out, is because the reality is, is like, this was a process. This was a process. We, 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 like to be, we would like to believe, we would like to believe that it was just clean cut, you know, they got all the representatives from every single church all across the Roman Empire and, and the East and all these sorts of things. They got them all together in one room, and they all voted, and there was 100% unanimous consensus over time in, in that one moment, and they're like, good, we've got it clear-cut now. We've got our Bible, but it didn't happen like that. It was a process. It was God, through His Spirit, testifying, testifying to His people, this is my word. And this is really important for us to understand, especially as we wrestle with Scripture, is that God is breathing in and through His Scripture, and that that is something that we can experience and know and understand from His Word. And so, one question, one question I do want to answer is, are we still expecting more books to be added to this book, more, more writings to be added to this book? And the answer is, No. Um, I already see people shaking their heads. And I see you shaking my heads, and I felt like I wanted to go, yes, nah, psych. (laughs) 
No. Why? Why, why are we not expecting any more books to be added to this book? The reason why I have no expectation that there's going to be more added to this book is because I believe Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God, both of his character and how he is bringing about salvation in the earth. And when we look at the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of Scripture, which is to bring about the wisdom of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, is what Peter says, I'm not expecting anything more than God himself. Does that, does that make sense? Does that make sense? So this, this, is why, this is why I'm very suspect of other revelations that have come later and who have claimed the Abrahamic tradition. I'm very suspect of, of other uh, revelations, other books that have shown up, like the Book of Mormon, for instance, that have shown up and have claimed to give a greater clarity to the message of Jesus. You see, the early church recognized that Jesus was the fullness of God's revelation. He was the radiance of God's glory. He was the exact imprint of God's nature. And his salvation that he brought marked primarily and, and, and at its pinnacle at the cross was the revelation we were waiting for, was the revelation we received. And so the testimony about that story about Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that testimony and the teachings of Jesus is what I'm looking for for salvation. So I'm not looking for anything else past that. So I don't expect that there's going to be more books added to this book later on. For all intents and purposes, the, the Christian canon, the rule of faith, as it were, is closed. Is closed. So... That's a very brief and admittedly very sloppy rundown of why all these books are in this book. Now, the next question I want us to ask is, why is this important? Why is this important to us as Christians? Why is this book important to us? It's because we believe that the book, that this book, that Scripture is inspired by God and is given to us to reveal Himself and to reveal salvation to us. I'm going to read two scriptures that that really shape our understanding of this book. This is what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired. Sorry, is God-breathed. <laughs> is God-breathed, which is inspired, and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The second scripture I want us to read is 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. He says, Above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this this raises a question for us. All right. We talk about the Word of God being inspired. What do we mean by inspired? 
Or rather, what do we mean by it is breathed out by God? It's an important question for us to understand. We believe that in some way, in the writings of Scripture, God is breathing revelation of Himself in and through His prophets, in and through His apostles, in and through those who contributed to the very writings of Scripture. Now, what does that look like? What does that, what does that process look like? Now, unfortunately, that process is, it, what it actually looks like is far more organic than most people kind of conceptually have in their minds. Because we have such a high view of Scripture, right? We, 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 you know, we, we would fall within the, the Protestant stream, the Protestant tradition, which means whether you've heard this term or not, you most likely have in your mind a doctrine of what's called sola scriptura. And if you've never heard that phrase before, all it basically means is that when we ask ourselves, what is the highest rule, what is the highest authority for Christians in all matters of their faith and practice, we go, the Bible is. The Scriptures are. The Scriptures teach us about what Jesus taught. And so the Scriptures are our highest authority for everything we do, how we live, how we act, how we conduct our church services, all these things. We want to make sure that Scripture is the highest authority that we're appealing to when we're making decisions about that. And, and if you're part of the Protestant tradition, that's, that's a tradition that you've inherited, whether you've ever heard that term or not. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure that we understand this book correctly. We want to make sure we understand and interpret this book um, rightly because it is so important to who we are as Christians. And so understanding this process of God breathing out His revelation in Scripture is also important because I think sometimes because we have such a high view of Scripture, we have a almost too mystical view of how it came about. Sometimes, and, and this, is, this has been one of the traditions that has been taught at, at a point in church history, basically people's view of, of how we kind of got the Bible is that what would happen to these scripture writers is that at a moment in time they would kind of black out. They would kind of just black out and start writing and then, and then wake up and, and, and there it is. And there it is right in front of them, a, a book. The reality is the process is far more organic. It's far more, it's far more uh, touched by human interaction than, than sometimes what we really want to kind of admit. When God breathes out his revelation, he's breathing through his prophets. He's breathing through his apostles. He's giving them revelation about who he is. But all that revelation is then shaped and understood within their worldview and within their framework. Evidence of this is the fact that if, if you were to take the Old Testament's perspective on cosmology, right, you would have to accept that the world is flat, that the earth is flat. You would have to accept that there is a dome over the earth. You would have to accept that rather than sky, as we traditionally understand it as being different as, as air, and then you get the ozone layer up there, you would have to accept that there's actually a whole other body of water up there. And that, and that when you look at the stars, what you're actually looking at is not burning bowls of gas, light years and light years away. What you're actually looking at is spiritual beings. So you see, when God breathes into his prophets, he, they are still speaking from their perspective in the world. 
It's important for us to understand as we read that. <clears throat> and what that means is, is that this is a process. It is a process of God breathing. It means that the writers and contributors of Scripture um, did not black out and wake up with a book written in front of them. It means that the writing of Scripture was a process and a very careful and deliberate process. <clears throat> One of the things that's beautiful, or well, I find beautiful, you might find it boring. One of the things I find <laughs> beautiful about this book is just how deep and complex and how meaningful even some of the most uh, on surface level, meaningless passage of scriptures, uh, meaningless passages of scripture can be. <clears throat> it is a deliberate process. The Jewish literary style of writing is incredibly deep, well thought out, and because of that, there's a richness to the text, which honestly, the more you study it, feels evergreen. It feels evergreen. It feels like you can never plumb the depths of the meaning and the richness of the scriptures when you read and you study them. It means that there's parts of the Bible. <clears throat> sorry, this, 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 this be here. So, so what do we talk about it being a process? It also means that part of this process is that there's parts of the Bible which are copied from non-Jewish and non-Christian sources. We have to accept that that's, that's part of this book. There's parts of the book of Proverbs which are just straight up lifted from Egyptian wisdom literature. And yet, when the scriptural writers do that, and they include it in the canon. There, there's, this accept, there's, this, there's this acknowledgement that this wisdom that they found in another culture accords with God's wisdom. And so we're going to include that with it. Paul will quote, Paul will quote pagan philosophers when he's preaching in the Areopagus. That's part of our scripture. Now, does it make those pagan philosophers prophets of God? No. No. But when Paul takes their words... And brings them into the context, into, into its context. It becomes the inspired word of God. Um, and yet, with all of this, and yet with all of these things, which which sometimes sometimes people are really they get really get rattled when they hear that. But I, I want to assure you that it's always been there. And still, even with that knowledge. There's been a consistent testimony down through the generations that this book is inspired by God. Not just because it says it is, but because we experience God speaking in and through His Word. We experience God speaking through in and through His Word. Secondly, we also believe, we not only believe that God breathes out revelation, that He inspires this book, we also believe that revelation is progressive. And what do we mean by progressive? Well, I'm going to read a scripture first. I'm going to read a scripture first, and then I'm going to explain what I mean by progressive revelation. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so what 
to kind of give you an analogy of, of what, this, what this kind of looks like is, is that throughout the scriptures, as, as, as God called Abram and, 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 and made covenant with Abraham and, and, and was giving revelation, he was bit by bit revealing more of who he is. He was bit by bit revealing more of his plan of salvation. That's why in the Old Testament there's so many types and there's so many shadows that, that really only find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This, this revelation of God and his character meets its apex, meets its fullness in Jesus Christ. The, the, the analogy, an analogy for this is, is kind of like when, at night when you, when you look up and you see the moon, and the moon looks like it's glowing, right? But we, we know the moon doesn't glow in and of itself, right? We know that the moon is simply a reflection. It's simply a reflection of a greater light that is presently on the other side of the, of the planet at that time. Right? But when we see the sun, when we see the sun, we see the very source of that light. We see it in its fullness. Does that distinction make sense? You see, in the Old Testament, it's like looking at the moon. There's light there, but it's a light that's reflected from a much greater light. And it's only in Jesus that we see the fullness of the revelation of that light source. That we see the fullness of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And that's why he will say, that's why he will say that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the express nature of God's glory. And so when God spoke through his prophets, he was always contending with their sinfulness. He was always contending with their cultural uh, accepted understanding of the world and all these sorts of things. But in Jesus, when he himself comes, when he himself steps down and takes on human flesh, he is no longer contending with those things in and of himself. And he is able to fully reveal the character and nature of himself in Jesus Christ. And so, Revelation is progressive. Which means that sometimes in the Old Testament, you're going to be reading certain passages of the Bible, and you're like, I don't know how this helps me as a Christian. And that's okay. It's not all easygoing. You see, I, we fully accept, we fully accept that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. But that doesn't mean that all Scripture is as readily profitable or is as easily profitable as all other parts. I hope that distinction sits well with you. Because you see, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not the only one who's ever read a genealogy and, and gotten bored. And yet, that genealogy is Scripture. There is something in that genealogy that is if I am to meditate upon it, if I am to understand it, if I am to chew over it, if I am to understand that genealogy within the greater context of Scripture, that genealogy is able to be profitable to me, is able to be profitable to me for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. Now, that might not be readily apparent when you're reading a genealogy. And yet, when we get into the depths of it, of who's included in the genealogy, and perhaps why they're included in the genealogy. I, I listened to such a fascinating thing about the genealogy of Jesus. I think it was given, um, I think Luke gives, gives one of the genealogies, but in, in one of the genealogies of Jesus, and it includes four, three or four women. And this, and this, and this guy, is it four? 
It's four. All right. Um, it, it includes four women. And the, this, this scholar was going through why these four women were included in this genealogy and what that perhaps said about the greater cosmic battle that was going on between Jesus and the powers, the principalities and powers. Now, that's just not there on the surface. And so I, I want to encourage your heart that all Scripture is inspired and is God-breathed and is profitable to you. But you're going to have to work sometimes a little bit harder in certain passages of Scripture for it to be profitable to you. I want to encourage, I want to encourage you in that. Um, yeah, because sometimes genealogies... I'm really hammering on genealogies. It's just, it's just not part of our culture. <laughs> and so it's not as readily meaningful for us. So it means that sometimes we're going to have to wrestle with passages of Scripture to get them to yield, to get them to yield their value to us. But we accept and we acknowledge that all Scripture is God-breathed and it will yield value to us if we're willing to wrestle with it. As, as God's people... As, as I, I'm, again, I'm assuming predominantly Gentile believers here, we have been grafted into Israel. <laughs> we understand that the world was a horrible and cruel place. And slaves were not treated as human beings. And what we see reflected in, what we see reflected in the Old Testament laws regarding slaves is if we're willing to view it through their ancient worldview, we're what we begin to see is actually an incredibly humane practice compared to the way the rest of the world was acting at the time. Now, for us, it still looks like slavery. But for them, this was compassion to treat them as human beings even while they still remain slaves. God is in a process of discipling His people through His progressive revelation. And sometimes what love looks like in that ancient context is going to be different from how we, have, we understand love today. And so I'm going to wrap it up here. So what is the goal of Scripture? What is the goal of Scripture? Because sometimes, sometimes that's helpful to understand when you're reading it. What's the goal? What's it trying to achieve? And the goal of Scripture, I believe, is the revelation of God and the nature of His salvation is the revelation of God and the nature of His salvation. And in order for us to read this book rightly, I believe we have to start not at the beginning, but we start with Jesus. That might seem counterintuitive because we, we're used to reading books from the beginning. But I want to encourage you that because I believe that Jesus Christ is the fullest, clearest revelation of God and His character. I want to encourage you to start with Him. I want to encourage you, if you're a new believer or you're a young Christian or you haven't studied the Bible much, I want to encourage you to spend more of your time in the New Testament. I want, you, I want to encourage you to spend more of your time with Jesus in the Gospels. Let His character, let the way He treats people. Let His teaching shape and mold everything about who you are so that when you go back to the Old Testament and you begin looking, you're looking for that character revealed. You're looking for that character that, 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 and that revelation that's veiled in many instances in the Old Testament.
I want to encourage you to stay and to stick with Jesus for as, um, for as long as possible, like, like as you're ever going to move past Jesus. I want you to encourage you to spend the most of your time with Jesus and His teaching. I said it's the revelation of His character and the way of His salvation. The reason why I want you to stick with Jesus as well is not just because He perfectly reveals God's character. It's because He reveals salvation to us. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He rose again, triumphant over sin, over death. The very thing that plagues our world even to today. The scriptures say that God is in the process of gathering all things under his feet to make a footstool for King Jesus. And that's a process that's still ongoing. And if we want to participate in this salvation, if we want to participate in this kingdom that he has brought in the here and now, he says this, follow me. And he says this to you even here and now, follow me. And so that's why I want to encourage you to spend most of your time with Jesus when you're reading this Bible. Because if you are to ever learn how to be discipled by him, you need to spend time with him. You need to learn his ways. You need to re- learn how to recognize his voice in all areas and all situations of your life. And so my greatest desire for you is, is to genuinely, that, that you would love Jesus and you would love this book. That you would love this book. I, I feel like sometimes, I feel like sometimes we are so spoiled. We're so spoiled in the West because this is just so readily available to us. It's just so common. And we have this tendency to treat that which is common. We, we, we tend to get overly familiar with it. And familiarity can often breed contempt. We become so, it becomes so run-of-the-mill. I could pick up my Bible at any time, so there's no urgency for it. I can, I can, I can read my Bible at any time. This TV show is going to be on at 6, and I don't want to miss it. I want you to fall in love with this book because I want you to meet the Jesus that this book reveals and I want you to fall in love with him. Because when you fall in love with him, it will change everything about your life. And it's not, that's not meant to be pithy. It's an experience to be experienced. It's a reality to be experienced. So I'm going to leave it there, and we're going to come back part two in another week. We're going to talk about how we read Scripture and how we apply it and how we understand it and get the most out of it. So I'm going to invite the music team back. I said that I was going to attempt to go shorter. <laughs> and, um, and we got about halfway. <laughs> So I'm just going to pray. I'll get you to stand. I'll get you to stand if you're able. And we're just going to pray. And we're going to, we're going to worship God in song. Um, so Jesus, I pray that you would help us to love your word.
I pray that you would help us to, to understand your book. Holy Spirit, we know that you are our teacher, that you teach us and you lead us, you guide us in the ways of righteousness. You lead us in the way of salvation. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that this week, this week that you would be moving on, on the hearts of everyone here to, to pick up the word. And then when they pick up the word, that, that Holy Spirit, you would open it up to them, make it alive to them, teach and instruct their hearts. We love you, Lord. And we just ask that you bless your people. Amen.